Let us now hear the words from Jesus' prayer, John 17, 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us go to him in prayer. O oh, holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're here in John 17, and we've now spent all of January in John 17, and we'll spend all of February in John 17, and then we will spend all of March in John 17. But then it'll be Easter, and we will, and we will be consoled because we, Jesus has come out of the tomb. And in this prayer, in your Bible, you will have noticed that, that the editors put little headings over the different sections of Scripture. And over John 17, it is called the High Priestly Prayer. Now, Two years ago, we studied the book of Hebrews, and there we understood in that letter that the author was writing to Jewish Christians, Christians who were once Jewish, and then they had grown up with the tradition of a high priest. And so he explains to them that Jesus Christ is the great high priest, that there is no high priest after Jesus, because the work of Jesus is sufficient and supreme above all else. And Jesus is the high priest. The reason he says he's the great high priest is because the high priest was tasked once a year on the day of atonement with going into the most holy places of the tabernacle or of the temple. And there he would make the sacrifice on behalf of Israel and intercede for them. And when Christ came, being the great high priest, his sacrifice on the cross for our atonement for sins, after which there was no longer needed a sacrifice made, for that reigns supreme. Now, in understanding the Jewish faith, and understanding a bit more about high priests and how they function, in Exodus 28, God gives explicit instructions simply for the garments that the high priest would wear. The entire chapter is dedicated to the garments of the high priest. Specific instructions of the kind of material it can be made with and the stitching used and the embroidery on different places. And there as part of the priestly garments is one called the breastplate. Now this wasn't made of a precious metal or of steel in order to protect the high priest. Rather, this was made from fabric like the epoph, the outer robe. But it was to be sewn on and attached over the breast of the high priest. And on it contained 12 squares. 12 squares, each one with a different gem or a stone on it. And the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was sewn on there as the breastplate because the high priest was again the representative of God's chosen people to go into the most holy places and to offer atonement for their sin and intercede on their behalf. But here the position of the breastplate of the high priest is this, that the very names 
on the breastplate were always close to the high priest's heart, just as it is with Jesus and his precious people. And now we have Jesus here in his high priestly prayer. And he's praying and he's interceding on behalf again of God's chosen people. Jesus uses words in his prayer that tend to make us uncomfortable. That Jesus is praying for those who were given to him. The ones God chose. The ones God elected. And not the whole world. And to be honest, a great many struggle with these very words. And the other words found throughout the New Testament. We struggle because we like autonomy. Don't we? We like to be in charge of ourselves. One of the greatest, one of the things we're shown over and over again throughout Scripture and in our own lives is that given the chance, we will take the opportunity to be God of ourselves. We want to be in control of every choice we make, yet we don't always want the responsibility for the consequences but we certainly want that control over our choices and our decisions. And to hear words like God elected us causes the hair on our neck to be raised because it means we weren't in charge of our choice to come to Jesus. How could that be? So we struggle. We struggle because even as Americans in the foundation of this great country were the values of liberty and freedom. That above all else, we wanted to be free to choose. And this feels the exact opposite, as if we didn't have a choice in the matter. And so we struggle with the doctrine of election. Yet when we read in the Old Testament, we accept that God simply chose Abram and not someone else to be the father of many nations. We simply accept that Noah, out of all of the people, was the one chosen to survive on the ark. We simply accept that Jacob was loved and chosen and not Esau. And we accept that it was David not one of his seven older, more stronger brothers to go and face Goliath. We accept when we read Scripture that Mary was chosen to carry Jesus the Christ. But when it comes to ourselves, we desire to be the ones in charge. We desire to be the ones with the choice. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans in the third chapter, beginning in verse nine, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we struggle because it seems to be that with contained within Scripture are two unreconcilable truths. And yes, they both exist there, and God doesn't ask us to reconcile them. He simply tells us that they are true. One is that we are responsible for our rebellion, our sin, and our evil. And the other is that God is responsible for our salvation and our good works. And they seem at odds. But God holds them both up. For you see, without God's intervention first, we would never choose him to be God. We would never choose Jesus to be our Savior. Our first turn is always to ourselves. But it tells us in Scripture that he first loved us. Before we ever loved him, he loved us. And so Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, I believe he summed it up best when he said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. He continues on saying, to me, it is one of the sweetest, most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And there are those who are afraid of it because they do not understand it. If they could know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. You see, earlier in the same prayer, Jesus reminds God and tells the hearers of this prayer of the covenant of redemption that was in place before the world existed. plan for salvation was in place before the world existed. Do you know what this means? Do you understand the gravity of what this means? This means that you, believers in Christ, have always been on God's heart from before the world existed. Before he formed you in your mother's womb, he loved you and had a plan for you. It is in these words that cause our feet to move and our tongues to shout hallelujahs in the depths of our struggles. Because through it all, God, the Father, has always loved you. And it's in these verses, it's in these words of Jesus's prayer that he tells us not only does he make a sacrifice for us, an atonement for our sins upon the cross, but that he intercedes for us, that he is praying for us in those times of struggle, in those times of suffering, in those times of confusion and being lost. Jesus is there interceding for us, telling the Father, this is one of mine. 
And so they are one of yours. This is the prayer Jesus prays for those God has given him. For he says it in verse 10. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Quite simply put, it's if you belong to Jesus, get ready. If, if you haven't been listening, if, here's, here's the gospel right here, right here. If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to the Father in heaven. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to the Father. Are you trusting in Christ? then you are one of God's elect. If you have come to Christ and are his redeemed, it is certain beyond a doubt that you were chosen by God. All mine, Christ prays, are yours. And also all yours are mine. Meaning that if you belong to the Father, then you belong to Christ. If you are the Father's, then you are utterly dependent upon Jesus for everything, for your salvation, for your good works, for your hope, for your joy, for your life abundance. For he is the vine, he tells us in John chapter 15, and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart, if we are the branches and he is the vine, and we are apart from Christ, we produce no good fruit. We see Jesus then says, and I am glorified in them the fruit the branches produce glorifies the vine. The sweet bouquets and the flowers and the buds and the blooms upon the vine of the branches glorifies the vine. See, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, the church, this word Paul uses in Greek, ekklesia, is the people called from the world to God. And so the church, the people called from the world to God, are the body of Christ here and now, the fullness of him, the all in all. And so it be that Jesus is glorified by saving sinners. That Jesus is glorified by our perseverance in faith. That he is glorified by our fruit and our good works. That he is glorified by our holiness. He is glorified by our cheerful, faithful obedience to love others, to be gracious to be forgiving and to have efforts to extend his kingdom. 
often is the case in a church that we can leave the ministry of extending God's kingdom to a few or to the ministers. But it was not designed to be so. For see, we are people gathered, chosen by God, knowing that he's had us and loved us all our lives. That overwhelming love and that joy for us causes us to give our lives as a sacrifice and a service over to him for his glory. And so when the church is glorified, Christ is glorified. This is what Paul's getting at in most of his letters, especially when he uses the imagery of the bridegroom and the groom. That when First Christian Church of the Beaches somehow makes it into a newspaper for helping someone in need or for going out and seeking the lost, Christ is glorified. For when his church is made known, Jesus is made known. For when the church strives to share the gospel and help the needy, Christ is glorified. For next week when you gather and you wake up earlier than you normally wake up to get here and praise God and you go through traffic you don't normally go through to get here to praise God so that you may come and worship him and then go into the streets outside the church and offer to those running. Who are running to fight to end breast cancer, and you offer them the body and the blood of Jesus, encouraging them along their way, knowing that it is Christ who strengthens them, that apart from Christ, this fight so that another generation doesn't experience the devastation of breast cancer does not exist. And in so doing, by serving, Christ is glorified in you. This is what Jesus prays. And so, beloved, I want you to leave with this on your heart. That you are Christ, and so you are the Father's. And you belong to the Father, and so you belong to the Son. And in you, by your life, your love, your joy, your suffering, your faithfulness, your work for the kingdom of God, may in all of it, Christ be glorified forever. Amen.